0: Glorious, glorious worship, and such a blessing to my heart to hear your hearts singing out in praise of the Lord. And what a joy it was to hear from Brother Santiago and just to see what the Lord is doing. Uh, As you know, I've been on the mission field in different parts of the world and It is really amazing to see uh, the progress of this ministry and how far the Lord has brought them in such a short time. And we're just so excited about what the Lord will do to launch them to the next phase and uh, just ask you to continue to be in prayer uh, for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Also, make sure that you're praying for who the Lord would have you to give a personal invitation to, to the Christmas concerts. It's probably one of the best times of the year to reach out to someone and to invite them to come and to hear the glory of the gospel as it is so beautifully uh, portrayed and communicated by our choir and orchestra. Well, prayer is the topic uh, for today, and if you remember back on October 17th, that's already that far back, I preached on our core value of humble prayer, and our text was Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, which is the passage containing the Lord's Prayer. And if you remember, I did what I called an accidental cliffhanger. We didn't have time to dive into the Lord's Prayer itself, and so we covered just the Lord's instructions for prayer in the verses which preceded in verses 5 through 9. So as promised, we're returning to Matthew chapter 6 and continuing the message which I entitled, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. That sermon title is drawn from a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11 when one of the disciples comes up to Jesus and says those words, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. I hope that is the desire of your heart this morning. I hope that your heart is saying right now, Lord, teach me to pray. And I hope we as a congregation are saying, Lord, teach us to pray. I am encouraged by the signs that I'm seeing within the congregation that this core value of humble prayer is more than just words on a poster, but it is a growing commitment of the congregation, both individually and corporately. I think we are growing in our understanding of the importance of prayer and in the power of prayer. Uh, Just this week, a couple was sharing in one of our life groups how the Lord has used our focus on corporate prayer in the Sunday evening services. They have a relative who's been completely closed to the gospel for years and years and years, just an absolute stone wall. This is the type of person who, who won't even allow anything having to do with God spoken of in his presence. But as this couple has begun praying for him during the corporate prayer times, during the Sunday evening prayer services, his heart has been softening. And recently he shocked them by saying, you know, I know I'm not going to be around much longer, and so I, need, I know I need to start looking into these things. Just blew them away. And that led to an incredible opportunity to share the gospel with him and to encourage him to begin reading the scripture, which he agreed to do. There's power in prayer. And I know that many of you have loved ones, family members, or close friends who need the Lord. And so I want to encourage you to come on Sunday evenings where there's a specific time devoted to praying for the lost you know the first step in getting your loved ones to talk about god is to talk about god uh, is to talk to your lo- uh, to god about your lost loved ones if you want your loved ones to talk about god you need to talk to god about your loved ones and i'm convinced that the reason so few people in the United States in these days are coming to faith in Christ is that we don't talk to God about people, and that prevents us from talking to people about God. You know, it's, it's not a really complicated thing. In places where many people are getting saved, and I've been able to be in some of those places around the world where there's a great harvest of souls, and wherever there's a great harvest of souls, there are two things occurring in the churches that are very simple and yet very powerful. People, believers, are talking to God about the lost and talking to the lost about God. That's what begins the work of revival. When we talk to God about people and talk to people about God, marvelous things begin to happen because praying for the lost and reaching the lost are two sides of the same coin. You can't get one without the other and if you have one, it means you have both. If you pray for the lost, you'll talk to the lost. If you talk to the lost, you'll pray for those that you have talked to. We can't win lost souls without prayer, and if we pray, when we pray, the Holy Spirit will move us to obey, and we will reach out to the lost. So, if you love the lost, if you have compassion upon them, and if you want the eternal rewards which come from being a diligent ambassador of Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to join us on Sunday evenings for worship, for practical training in how to share your faith, and for focused prayer for the lost in the Go Groups, which we will be launching after the holidays. We believe that the Great Commission is our mission. And so we've committed ourselves, as our mission statement says, to go with the gospel, to gather together in loving community, and to grow in our love, our trust, our obedience, and our service to Christ. And as I said in the last message in that mini-series on our mission and core values and vision statements, for our vision for the future to become a reality, it must be more than just a plan. It must be our earnest prayer. As we were reminded at the end of the message on the vision statement, Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So I think that that cliffhanger from several weeks ago and the gap in between our first message on the Lord's Prayer and then this one and the one that I'll be preaching next week was Perhaps accidental on my part, but it was providential on the part of the Lord. It is our reminder after the conclusion of the miniseries on our core values and on our vision statements that all of the things that we hope to be and do depend upon the power of God, and therefore we must pray. Apart from him, we can do nothing, and that means we must pray. Pray. So let's return now to our study of Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. This is a vital passage on prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, and notice again the assumption that believers will pray. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Notice that the focus on reward here. He says, Look, if you pray just to be seen by people, your goal was to be noticed and appreciated or approved of. You get that, and so you already have your reward in full, and it ends there. But if your goal is to glorify the Lord and to serve him, and if you are praying sincerely and not hypocritically, your Father, he says, will reward you. Prayer brings a reward. Perhaps we don't teach on this enough, but your eternal destination is decided by faith and faith alone. If you do not believe you're on the broad road which leads to a destination, it leads to hell. If you believe you're on the narrow road which leads to life, it leads to heaven. So faith and faith alone determines your destination. But in both of those destinations, there are varying judgments and rewards. Those who are on the broad road to destruction, the scripture says, will be judged according to their deeds, and there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell. Those who believe and are their destination is heaven, they will also be judged at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ for their service and their deeds, and varying degrees of reward will be determined and given by the Lord. And Jesus is talking about the reward which which accompanies sincere prayer. You, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There is a reward for sincere prayer. He says, when, verse seven, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen In this vitally important passage, Jesus teaches us 12 principles of prayer. And you may remember from last time I said 11 principles of prayer, but I realized I had neglected a key one, so I added it this week and was hoping you wouldn't notice, but then decided to just point it out that I changed it from 11 to 12. So our outline for the whole passage, which I gave to you last time, was, well, I said 11 ways to pray. Now it's 12 ways to pray. Pray with sincerity, pray in secret, pray succinctly, pray substantively, pray as a son, pray for sanctification, pray strategically, pray with submission, pray for sustenance, pray with sorrow for sin, pray for shepherding and praise God for his supremacy. 12 ways to pray. Last time we covered the first four derived from the Lord's teaching in verses five through nine. So today we're studying the last eight and actually we're just beginning that. We're actually only going to get to the next one and then we'll be continuing on next week. And as I mentioned last time, many expositors have described the structure and content of the Lord's prayers containing two parts with three requests in each part. The Lord's prayer contains a prayer for God's glory and a prayer for man's needs. So two focuses of prayer with three requests in each. When we are praying for God's glory, we pray that his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. And when we pray for man's needs, we pray about our need for daily bread, our need for forgiveness, and our need for deliverance from evil praying for God's glory and praying for man's needs. And I want to spend a significant portion of today's message talking about those two aspects, praying for God's glory and praying for man's needs. The Lord is teaching us how to pray. And the fact that half of the prayer is devoted to the glory of God, to His name being honored, to His kingdom coming and to His will being done, should remind us that we need to have an appropriate prioritization and balance in our prayers. Notice that it's not the whole prayer which is about man's needs. In fact, it doesn't begin with man's needs, it begins with God's glory. God is supreme. He is primary. We, as the creation, are secondary. We are not of first importance. He is. So this structure reminds us that our prayer times need to be balanced between the vertical and the horizontal, between praying about our relationship with God and praying about our relationships with other people, between praying for spiritual needs and praying for physical needs. And it reminds us that God's glory is a higher priority than our needs. So we need to be God-centered, not man-centered, even in our prayers. Can I ask you to examine your heart by analyzing your prayers? Did you know you could do that? You can examine your heart by analyzing your prayers. Do you start your prayers with, hallowed be thy name? Or do you start with, give us today? Where does your heart start? With the glory of God or the needs of man? It's not so much, I think, the chronological order, but it is the priority of the heart. What's most pressing on your heart? That God would be glorified or that the issues of your life be blessed? Are you God-centered or man-centered in your prayers? You know, I would assume that the vast majority of the congregation does, does not accept what is called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We would say theologically that we disagree with that, but let us analyze our prayers. A focus on health, wealth, and prosperity tends to dominate the prayers even of those who say they haven't fallen into that error. What's the priority of your heart? Is it health, wealth, and prosperity? Or is it the honor of the name of God, the coming of His kingdom, and His will being done on earth exactly the way that the inhabitants of heaven do it? What's the priority of your heart? Do you devote time in your prayer to worship, to adoration, to thanksgiving, to praying for God to be glorified, or is most of your prayer time focused on yourself? Who is the focus of your prayer, the great I am or the great M.E.? I think we need to remember that prayer is talking to God is talking to God, a personal God. Have you ever met someone who, whenever they talk to you, they talk only about themselves? You know, you always walk away saying, man, what? how self-centered is he? He only talks about himself. I think... That's the Lord's reaction to a lot of the prayers that he hears from us. Fred only talked about himself. Sally only talked about herself. Jim only talked about himself. You know, when we talk to God, then we only talk about our needs, our wants, our requests for ourselves our small circle of life and of acquaintances. And there is no attention in prayer to the grander vision of God's redemptive plan, of His coming kingdom, of His will being accomplished, of evil being defeated and the King reigning. Our vision is much too small and our priorities have become disordered. If you're self-focused, even when you're talking to God, you know you have an issue with pride. And that, I know, is hitting home to every single one of us, is it not? We need to make sure our prayer life shows a heart that is God-centered, not self-centered. Talk to God. And don't forget God when you talk to God. Well, we can prioritize God's glory in our prayers very practically by praying along the great themes that the Lord reveals to us here, praying that the Lord's name would be hallowed, honored, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. But that is not then to neglect our personal requests. After we give God first place in all things, we are to bring our personal requests. We're to pray for our daily bread, our sustenance, for forgiveness for deliverance from evil. We are to bring our prayers and supplications to the Lord. But I want you to remember that when the scripture encourages us to bring our prayers and requests and supplications, it tells us to bring something else with it. Think of Philippians 4 verse 6, for example. Listen to what this verse says. It says, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I'm pausing because I'm hoping that a lot of you have memorized that verse and realized that I omitted a phrase. What phrase did I omit? What I said was, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. This is, if you listen to people's prayers, you would think that this is what the verse says. In everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God. But there is a key phrase which I just omitted. What it actually says is, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, we're not supposed to bring just our requests. We are to bring them with thanksgiving. God is not a vending machine. I don't bring thanksgiving to a vending machine. I just punch the buttons and get what I need. Don't treat God that way. He's not an impersonal vending machine of blessings. He is a personal God who loves you. And when you come to him with your needs or requests, come with thanksgiving. Come to give, not just to get. We should pray to give glory to God, not just to get blessings from God. So bring your requests, but bring them with thanksgiving. I want you to keep that God-centered perspective on prayer in mind as we now go into the remaining eight principles of prayer that we see in the Lord's Prayer itself. As I said, we're going to cover just one of them today, and then we'll continue going. It's going to be at least a trilogy and maybe a quadrology or whatever it is when you do a fourth message. To bring us again back to our outline, if you remember from several weeks ago, we covered the first four principles of prayer from verses five through nine, which is to pray with sincerity, to pray in secret, to pray succinctly, and to pray substantively. So now the Lord is going to teach us more principles of prayer through the Lord's Prayer itself. And the first principle we learn from the Lord's Prayer, which is the fifth in our list here, is to pray as a son. Pray as a son. Let's read the Lord's Prayer together and then look at that first phrase. Pray then in this way, Jesus says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. The first phrase is, our Father, who art in heaven. We should pray as a son, pray as a son. It's the first thing that the Lord teaches us in the Lord's prayer is that we address God as, our heavenly Father. We are to come into God's presence, into the presence of the great King, the King of all kings, as sons, not just as subjects. We come into the throne room of God Almighty and we come as sons, not just subjects. This is one of the key differences between saving grace, the biblical gospel, and all of the false religions of the world. In Islam, for example, the relationship between a Muslim and Allah is one of master and slave, period. Formally stated that way in their theology and in their practice. In fact, the term Muslim means one who submits. That's the nature of their relationship with Allah is that of master and slave. I remember getting to know a man in Ukraine, and he was a very antagonistic to the gospel type of a person, and when we would be trying to share the gospel with others, he would gather a group of young, tough men and come and cause us problems and threaten us and other things, and and we prayed for him, and because he would always c- come to run us off, the next time we were down there, I decided, hey, instead of waiting for him to come to us, I'm just going to go to him. And so I went and knocked on his comp- compound door. They were all in this big compound, and they were just shocked when they opened the little sliding window thing. And I asked for him by name. They were really shocked by that, and I went in and asked if I could talk with him. And so I sat down and talked with him. And in one of those visits, one time and one time only, I had a chance to talk to him alone, and he was a totally different man alone than he was when he was surrounded by the others. When we were alone, he asked me to pray for his mother. And then he told me, he said, Allah is a a hard master. And I know I can never be good enough to go to heaven. That's why I know that the only hope for me is to die in jihad. Allah is a hard master. I'm supposed to love him, but I hate him. And he almost had tears in his eyes, and then some of the others noticed that the conversation seemed to be going the wrong way and came up, and his tone changed immediately. Back to aggression. See, only the gospel brings us into a relationship with Almighty God that is that of a son or a daughter. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ grants us access into the very throne room of God. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the right to talk to our Creator, to the Almighty, as a child of God. And John 1.12 says that this is what Jesus came to do. It says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. In the letter to the Hebrews, remember that this letter is written to people who knew that you, you couldn't just waltz into the temple. These were people who knew that the high priest had Little bells on the fringes of his cloak so that if God struck him dead in the Holy of Holies, they had a rope and they could, if the bell stopped jingling, they knew he had been struck dead and they could pull him out. You couldn't just waltz into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could do that, only once a year, only through sacrifice. There was a veil that separated the holy place and there was not access Listen to what Christ has done. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. This is the great great privilege of the believer. Do you realize how amazing it is that someone like me gets to waltz into the throne room of God? That someone like you someone like us, that we can have confidence to enter the holy place, that we can draw near with full assurance of faith. I don't wear bells on my suit coat. No one's holding the end of a rope waiting to see whether God strikes Brett dead for coming this near. is the new and the living way opened for us through the blood of Christ, through the rending of the veil, which is his flesh. It's a gift of grace. So now, we as sons and daughters come boldly, confidently, the way only a son or a daughter can come to a great king. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, It says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. By faith, you're united with Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you receive the adoption as sons. And so now you can enter the holy place with boldness and confidence. You can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. You can have that personal relationship with God the King. And you can even cry out to him, Abba. Their word for daddy, Abba Father. My grandfather on my maternal side, my mother's side, was raised in a a broken home with a terribly cruel father. And when he came to faith in Christ, This became his favorite verse. That he had not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but had received a spirit of adoption as sons by which he could cry out, Abba, Father. And my grandfather would always begin his prayers with the word Daddy. Many of you share that similarity with my grandfather You've never known the love of an earthly father, but through the Spirit of God, through the gospel of grace, you can receive the adoption as sons, and you as a son or a daughter of God can cry out to him, Daddy, Father, Abba, as a child of the King. It's a privilege, a gift of grace, to be united with Christ, the Son of God, and to receive the adoption as sons. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So the believer no longer relates to God the way unbelievers do. Unbelievers relate to God as a stranger, as an imposition, as a hindrance, as an enemy, and ultimately as a judge we who believe relate to God as children children of a loving, gracious kind and patient Abba Father the Lord begins the Lord's prayer by teaching us that God is our Heavenly Father but notice the rest of the phrase he says pray then in this way our Father who is in Heaven. This is a wonderful statement of what we call the imminence and the transcendence of God. The imminence means his nearness, his approachability. Transcendence means his supremacy and his sovereignty and his exalted glory. This phrase reminds us that God is imminent as our Abba Father, but The phrase that he is in heaven reminds us that he is still transcendent as God. He is exalted. He is sovereign. He is enthroned in heaven. So while we can approach his throne of grace with the confidence of a son, we must still approach with reverence and awe. That same book, the book of Hebrews, that says, Let us draw near with confidence, with full assurance of faith, also says, Let us give God reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You see, we come into the throne room with the boldness of a son and the boldness of a daughter, knowing we will be received by our Abba Father, but we don't forget that our Father is a great king, the king of all kings. And so we show him appropriate reverence and awe. The phrase, who art in heaven... Reminds us of something else, which I think is really important for us. It reminds us that we are aliens and we are strangers in this world. We are aliens and we are strangers in this world. How can this world be our home if our Father is in heaven? If your Father is somewhere else, then you're not home. Our Father who is in heaven. That's our home. Not here. And there's a huge practical implication for us. A life transforming one. This is the realization that gave the early Christians the boldness to stand against all of their persecutors. To endure all the suffering to face the lions and Nero's torches for the sake of Christ. To take the gospel to the world, though they were being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. To face all the dangers and the risks that that entailed and to do so with joy. They realize this isn't home. Heaven is our home. And here's what that means for you and I. Staying here should not be our top priority staying here should not be an all-consuming goal for the believer paul says i do not count my life as being dear to myself i live it to be poured out as a drink offering in the service of god and the service of others if this world is our home it would make sense for our top priority to be to stay here a little longer But if heaven is our home, then our top priority should be completing our mission, not extending our stay away from home. We're like the kid who doesn't want to come home from summer camp. We like the bunk beds there, but it's not our home. I'm not saying that it's wrong to exercise wisdom, to take care of your health, to avoid foolish risks, to apply due diligence to all of the things of life. But if you're prioritizing staying here over serving here, you've forgotten where your home is. If your priority is to stay here, not serve here, you have forgotten where home really is. Our true home is where our Father is, and he is in heaven. So don't cling so tightly to this world that you forget that your true home is in the world to come. A kingdom which cannot be shaken. An inheritance which cannot be lost. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. And you want your treasure to be where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Make Christ your treasure. Paul talked about A man named Demas, he said, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. You see, Demas forgot where his home was. Paul and his missionary teams were risking their lives. They were being beaten. They were in danger of death day and night. And Demas says, man, I want to stay here in this world. So he deserted them. What great loss to him, trading the eternal reward for temporal gain. Beloved, there are a lot of more important things than not dying. There are many things which are much more important than not dying. I want you to listen to the perspective of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. I hope, he says, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He didn't know whether he's going to live or die in constant danger. Then he says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, he knew what his life was all about. It was to serve Christ. So to live is Christ, and to die, he says, is gain. He says, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of, of the gospel. To live as Christ and to die as gain. So don't be so focused on not dying that you forget to live for Christ. Our Father is in heaven, and that means heaven is our home. So pray as a son and pray as a son whose father is in heaven. The men are going to come and serve us at the Lord's table. As they come, we're going to have a time of reflection. I want to urge you to consider whether you have the perspective that Paul just articulated, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only way you can gain that perspective is by remembering that first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. When you love him, you will realize that home is where your heart should be, even if for a while we are here to accomplish his will through our mission. Men, come and serve us the bread and let's have a time of reflection as they do.